0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for our interview. And I'm speaking today with Mia Mask. Dr. Mask is a professor of film at Vassar College and is the author of Black Rodeo. A History of the African-American Western, which came out with the University of Illinois Press just earlier this year in 2023. Welcome to the New Books Network, Mia. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Why don't we start, as we traditionally do on this show, by just hearing a little bit about you and who you are. Can you tell us a bit about your background? And in particular, I'm interested in what got you interested in film and in film history.
1: Sure. Thank you for the question. And thank you for welcoming me to the show. So I am a native of Brooklyn, New York. So I'm not, you know, from the Western States. Um, and I, you know, grew up uh, in the inner city. Uh, but interestingly enough, I was fortunate enough as a kid to have a teacher who started an after-school writing group. And she took a bunch of her students horseback riding. And that really began my fascination with love for horses. So that's just a bit of a personal backdrop to this whole story. Fast forward to much later in life, when I'm in college at Tufts University, and I was actually on a track to become a social worker. I was taking sociology courses. I was very interested in in various elements of sociology, either pursuing it academically or to become a practicing social worker. But then I took a course with Professor Lee Adelman, who was a professor in the English department, professor of literature and uh, cinema studies. And he taught the most fantastic course on the films of Alfred Hitchcock. And it completely turned my head in another direction. And I knew after that semester that I really wanted to pursue cinema studies. And, and I say cinema studies because I'm very intent on being clear that I really wanted to do film studies as opposed to filmmaking. Many people say to me, Mia, don't you really want to make films? And it's like, if I wanted to make films, I would be making them. (laughs) I really enjoyed, you know, the the examination of Hitchcock films from the perspective of psychology, sociology, anthropology, just bringing all of these different cultural lenses to the films to sort of have a deeper, uh, more comprehensive understanding of both the auteur as filmmaker, as well as the text as a social document right so that is what sort of sent me on this journey to graduate school so I went to NYU and uh, did cinema studies there and that really sort of took me to this place where I was very much involved in film studies so that's sort of how I got my start.
0: It's funny to me that people hear that you're interested in film and cinema studies, and they ask you if you want to make films, because on the one hand, that's a, that's a reasonable question. But on the other hand, making a movie seems like a lot of work. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it, seems, it is. It, it seems very, very, yeah, it seems like a, a, a skill set that uh, that I, I certainly can't imagine ever having. But um, that, that's that's a funny right. question to be asked.
1: <laughs> right. And it's a very different kind of labor. And not that yes. it's, yes. you know, labor. Right. Not that it's labor that anyone would devalue, but the the craft of filmmaking involves, you know, cinematography and lighting Mm -hmm. and sound and soundscape and sound design, as well as the the talent to be able to really select actors. And so it's a much Mm -hmm. more collaborative process uh, and, and so a very different kind of work altogether.
0: Right. Um, I'm curious also what brought you to the topic of this book. Why African-American Westerns specifically? Yes.
1: Well, that really emerged out of my fascination with the career, the life and times of Sidney Poitier. This, this project really came out of the fact that I had been working on a paper on Buck and the Preacher back in 2009 or 2010, around the time that my first book came out. I was sort of had begun to move on to work on Sidney Poitier, and particularly Buck and the Preacher. And then I became interested in, in his work on Westerns. And while I was working on that paper, I responded to a call, to, a call for papers to attend the Sydney Poitier International Conference and Film Festival in Nassau, Bahamas. And this was organized by a scholar, a colleague at the College of the Bahamas. And so I attended that and it was a small but um, well attended conference. When I say uh, small, I mean, instead of something like MLA, which might have hundreds of people at it, this maybe had about 100 participants in total as well as some of his extended that is mr poitier's extended family members who still live in the area so it was a lovely opportunity to meet other poitier scholars as well as some of his family members and that enabled us also to have a a phone call sort of a conference call with him this was like before zoom was like a you know a popular technology and so he he conference called into a group meeting with the participants of this conference, during which we asked him, we asked Mr. Poitier, of all the films that you made, which was your favorite? And you can imagine, Stephen, I was over the moon when he said his personal
0: favorite film was Buck and the Preacher.
1: Now that was... <laughs> what, a, um, what, a,
0: what a dream answer to get.
1: <laughs> okay, exactly, because that was the film that I was there presenting on. I think I was the only person presenting on the film at the time, and it was just so exciting for me, and it, for, it, it makes sense that it's one of his personal favorites, because it's it's the film that marked his directorial debut, and uh, a film in which he collaborated with his longtime friend, uh, Harry Belafonte, so it was a significant film in, in many regards, but... It was in the process of working on that film and then discovering its importance to Mr. Poitier and the importance in his overall filmography or oeuvre that I decided, wow, I really am am interested in going further with this examination into the Western genre and specifically African-American themed Westerns.
0: Well, let's get into uh, uh, the, the story that you tell here a little bit, um, and let's start by just setting some of the kind of basic context. Can you explain just a little bit, sort of like a, a, a thumbnail version of the history of the Western as a genre generally, and in particular, as you describe in the book, I'm, I'm interested in its relationship to rodeo performance.
1: Sure. Sure. So the literary arm of the genre really began in folk tales and stories about life on the frontier, stories about the Indian Wars began in 1607, right? You know, the Indian Wars began in 1607. So the moment that the English colonists arrived in Jamestown in 1607 began this uneasy relationship between Native Americans, right? Indians, the indigenous people who had thrived on this land for thousands of years, and the settlers and settler culture, right? And there were a series of skirmishes between 1622 and the late 19th century that uh, became known as the uh, uh, American Indian Wars. And um, these were wars between settlers, immigrants, uh, and the indigenous people over land control. So that's sort of uh, and it's out of the recounting of those stories that you have the sort of the folk tales, the parables of the western beginning to emerge. The western genre uh, is also informed. That is the cinematic genre is also informed by the what, the wild west and rodeo culture or what wild west shows, right? Is really what I mean. And These Wild West shows and rodeo culture really evolved out of the day-to-day culture of cowhands and cowboys, workers who worked on ranches on the frontier, those laborers who broke and trained horses, who managed and cared for livestock, who took care of cattle. Um, Their stories, their experiences, their exploits, um, their competitions became the fodder for wild west shows and for rodeo competitions of who was the best, uh, you know, uh, uh, horse breaker, you know, bronco rider, um, who was the best, you know, uh, uh, calf roper. So those sort of stories and exploits and competitions became fodder for rodeo competitions alongside the emerging Wild West shows. So people like Gordon Willie Lane or the Miller brothers, folks who who were either involved in large ranch businesses, uh, large ranch outfits, or were showmen themselves might have a a Wild West show on their ranch, on their property, or be affiliated with one, or they were showmen who created one. And these were contests for, um, sometimes they were were contests for those who were the best ranch hands, or sometimes they were just designed as entertainment. And so you have performers like uh, African-American performer Bill Pickett coming up. Through this um, through this sort of uh, trajectory, and so that's really a little bit of like how the the rodeo culture and the Wild West shows emerge and become popular entertainment.
0: And what is the backstory to the black western genre in film specifically? What's the history of the subset of the genre, and and how do its conventions both match with and also differ from the genre as as a whole?
1: Yeah so I mentioned Bill Pickett and he was and is sort of one of the sort of most renowned most well known uh cowboys rodeo performers and actors uh of this of this sort of late 19th century uh period so he was born in in uh, excuse me 1870 he died in about 1932 he was born in Texas in 1870 and died uh in the 30s in Oklahoma and he was a Rider, a very talented trick rider and rodeo performer, who joined the Miller Brothers 101 Ranch and traveled uh, both with their um, ranch rodeo and performed for them. And he also performed on film in films like *The Crimson Skull* and *The Bulldogger*. And these are these some of these films. Uh, some of the early films were not even full-blown narratives. They were almost like actualities that would just record... Uh, rodeo and trick riders performing stunts. In the same way, we might think of very early films and actualities before their full-blown narratives. So, when you think about films like *The Great Train Robbery*, that's a very, very early story that's just beginning to eke out, you know, narrative storytelling and, and show us the evolution of narrative storytelling. So some of these very early Westerns were like that, just almost loosely pulling together narrative threads to, to um, eke out a story about a rodeo rider or a performer. And so that would be, I would say, in its infancy, an example of the first sort of black uh, rodeo performer, or black Western. From that, then you also have, as, as the language of film is, is evolving, you begin to see in the teens and 20s filmmakers like Oscar Michaud making films like The Homesteader, right? Which we could also, and, and scholars also consider, a kind of early Black Western, right? Um, uh, Oscar Michaud was in a very talented uh, businessman and filmmaker who really was an autodidact. He taught himself, really, the craft of filmmaking, and he was very entrepreneurial, successful in. Uh, attracting, coloring, training talent to uh, perform in his films, Uh, talented at uh, quickly training people, uh, craftspeople, how to work the cameras and help him with equipment. And he would borrow a fur coat from from one lady and use it in his film and then return it in the afternoon. So he had all kinds of, you know, very um, intuitive and clever ways of finding the resources and the the costumes and the props that he needed for his films. So he uh, wrote novels, adapted them to the screen, uh, shot them and distributed these films himself. He initially thought about going into business with other filmmakers like George and Noble Johnson, but he ultimately decided he would be the one to make the films. He teaches him, you know, he teaches himself the craft. He adapts his own novels and stories to film. And then as I said, goes about the business of distributing them and showing them, you know, almost door to door to gain an audience among the homesteader community in the Dakotas where he settled. Uh, And so it's just a fascinating example of both an early African-American filmmaker and early Western cinema. So Michaud represents One example. And then by the time you get to the 30s, you're beginning to see that not only is the Western one of the most popular genres in American cinema in the early 1930s, it's also uh, a genre in which we're seeing uh, white filmmakers produce African American films. So, Richard Kahn, for example, uh, produced films like, um, uh, let me see, uh, two gunmen from Harlem uh, and uh, the bronze buckaroo uh, and uh, we have a number of in that in those ni- in that 1930s period of early all black cast westerns, some of which were musical westerns featuring the singing of um, the songs of singing cowboy Herb Jeffries. So you would have films like The Bronze Buckaroo, uh, in which Herb Jeffries plays a sort of white hat wearing heroic singing cowboy who would um discover that a friend of his had been uh you know treated wrongly over the existence of a uranium mine right something as fantastical as that that he had the deed to, and somebody was trying to cheat him out of his out of his inheritance and herb Jeffries would get to the bottom of that that mystery and and um help. The small family farmer, or the uh, the small um, uh, long lost uh, maiden in distress, you know, uh, to find her way, and uh, and these early all black cast westerns were enormously popular. So, two gunmen from Harlem, Harlem on the Prairie, Harlem Rides the Range, Bronze Buckaroo in the and the night were films that emerged in the nineteen thirties that give you an example of uh, how popular these all black cast Westerns were.
0: And as you describe in the book, it's the the kind of mid-20th century is an important turning point here. And you explain the connections between, uh, and I love this chapter of the book, I did not know any of this history, but between sports and athletics and Hollywood in the era of World War II. Can you explain this a bit? How did Hollywood, or excuse me, how did football stars, how did athletes, as you put it, invade Hollywood in the mid-20th century? And how are these actors shaping Black Westerns?
1: Oh, I so appreciate the question. So as you know, in the... Forties, Hollywood really turns its attention to war pictures. But then coming out of the 1940s, in the early immediate post-war era, they resume making Westerns. And um, it's not long before by the late 50s and early 60s, you have a number of uh, football stars like Jim Brown, like Fred Williamson, even to some extent, uh, Richard Roundtree, who recently passed, as you know, uh, w- were football heroes, were football stars, particularly Jim Brown and Fred Williamson, who, by the time they uh, have really uh, made a name for themselves in football and are beginning to become a little worn out by the, the difficulties and the physical demands of the game, begin to turn their attention to other opportunities, other uh, both financial and political opportunities for themselves. And so we see several of these uh, football stars who now have cultural and political cap- and social capital turn to filmmaking as a- another avenue to generate capital and to be influencers. And so uh, Jim Brown is sort of chief among them and first out of the gate, if you will, to make that transition and so it's it's interesting you have a number of these uh individuals and so it's uh, i discovered in the research for the book a fabulous article that was in the african-american press it might have been ebony magazine titled um Black, black Football Stars Invade Hollywood. So I was fascinated just by the title right, of that and also the, the interesting trajectory of several uh, you know, athletes, um, you know, chief among them being Woody Strode, right, who uh, you know, even preceded Jim Brown to make this transition from football to film. And so it's a really interesting story. I'm glad you enjoyed that chapter.
0: Well, just as someone that loves sports and movies, it was sort of a combination, and history. It was a combination of all yes. three of my favorite <laughs> topics. Nice, um, nice. Yeah. So uh, it was really interesting to hear how much uh, Sidney Poitier was um, sort of at the the, the the genesis of this book itself, because mm-hmm. um, you spent some time discussing him and his work in the book, too. And you describe how... Um, African-American actors like Poitier and, and others um, and Black Westerns in general in the 1950s and 60s, they start to kind of push the boundaries of the Western genre as a whole in, in this era. So in particular, how did films and actors in the sort of post-war period in the 1950s, 1960s, how are they pushing these boundaries and how are they handling topics that are so central to the frontier mythos as described by people like Richard Slotkin, right? Like uh, uh, topics like gender and like Native Americans. That was a big kind of unwieldy question. <laughs> no,
1: no, that's okay. Well, you'll get me <laughs> back on track if I get lost. And, and don't uh, hesitate to rephrase it. So I'll begin with Poitier, because you asked about him and, and how he was sort of trying to change the conversation. One of the things that Sidney Poitier and Harold Elefante had long discussed from all the way back to the 40s is their interest in making a Western. And they wanted to make a Black Western because they really felt that it would go a long way at showing the humanity and the uh, patriotism, the sacrifice and the commitment of African Americans to America. And that uh, African Americans had been so written out of history and so dehumanized in the cinema that they thought this would do go a long way towards advancing civil rights, advancing the dignity of African American people. And then as you may know, they around the, the mid 60s, around 1967, Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier have a bit of a falling out um, and they don't talk for about three years, but they will reconcile. And part of that reconciliation will be the coming together over the adaptation of um, a a film project that they're interested in collaborating on. They are inspired by uh, a book titled The Negro Soldiers. Uh, and um, excuse me, the Negro, the Negro cowboys. I often get to just mix mix up those titles, but the Negro cowboys, and it's a title. It's a, a book that was written by Philip Drummond and. Um, uh, uh, Leroy Jones, actually, uh, AKA Amiri Baraka. And it's, it's an account of the experiences of actual African-American cowboys and their work, um, as, uh, you know, their transition from Buffalo soldiers, uh, you know, who worked as, um, uh, cavalrymen to uh, their work on the frontier as cowboys. And it's this story that Harry Belafonte will bring to Sidney Poitier's attention. And together they will decide this is amazing fodder. This is great material to adapt to a story, uh, to make a, a screenplay. And so they hired Drake Walker and Ernest Kanhoye to help them adapt this. Uh, Ernest Kanhoye ha- and Drake Walker have cr- a screen credits on um, Bucking the Preacher. And they uh, m- tell this story of African-American, of, of Exodusters, of those former slaves, enslaved persons, you know, manumitted um, slaves who are part of this great migration, to the west, um, and a mass exodus out of the south and to the north, but more specifically to the northwest and to what the western states. And the wagon masters. It also tells the story of the wagon masters, who helped to guide, you know, these wagon trains and uh, provide passage for these wagon trains through what was considered hostile territory. Now here's the rub, here's the interesting, really fascinating part of the story. This was hostile territory, not so much because of the, the stereotype in our minds that, that um, the indigenous people or Native Americans made this passage or this landscape ho- hostile or unfriendly, but really because of the uh, white supremacists, the night Riders, the Klan uh, members, the enlisted former Confederate soldiers who were hired by Southern plantation owners, the plantocracy to go track down these wagon trains and intimidate these people to these uh, people fr- seeking freedom, seeking opportunity, intimidate them to return uh, back to these southern plantations, and they would intimidate them by um, ransacking their uh, their livestock, their supplies, uh, burning down their um, store, their feed storage, uh, and, and, and you know, basically uh, using violence. To intimidate these people and threaten them that, that if they didn't return to the south, they would you know they would be um, killed. They would and they would not survive the winter on the the, the uh, of of this journey. And this this is a true story. This is part of the experience of the Great Migration. And it was brilliant of Poitier and Harry Belafonte to want to adapt uh, the Drummond Leroy uh, story. Uh, uh, LeRoy John's story to cinema. And uh, that's the film that became Buck and the Preacher. And uh, ultimately, Sidney Poitier's directorial debut. Now, Poitier had made a Western before Buck and the Preacher. He had appeared in Duel at Diablo, 1966. uh, And that was uh, a film um, uh, the director's name will come to me in a second, but, uh, uh, Ralph Nelson that had, um, uh, that was directed by Ralph Nelson and Nelson had directed Poitier in Lilies of the Field. So they had experience working together before and Poitier was interested in, in continuing to, uh, to work with him, but they had, they had worked on Buckingham, excuse me, on, um, um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. They had worked on, um yeah duel diablo uh with james garner and together they made Poitiers first western but it wasn't a western that was nearly as political it wasn't uh as um you know, it had no real political agenda or bite except to have an African American uh, in the cast and on the Western frontier. But so that's the film that emerges in 1966. So by 1972, when Poitier is really uh, befuddled and um, uh, distressed over the constant criticisms of him as an Uncle Tom, the constant criticisms of his films as too common accommodationist, too much uh, too readily placating white audiences. He um, feels that Buck and the Preacher is the ideal film to help him uh, set the record straight because, in addition to um, showing that uh, African Americans had a um, you know uh, made this, this this migration to the Western states, it also Uh, shows African American, Native American coalition against white supremacy. So that's sort of the rub, if you will. That is, um, it demonstrates that it's not so much the Native American community that is a threat to the wagon trains, but actually it's the white supremacists who are really in search of and trying to capture labor and can continue to utilize the African-American community as a kind of indentured labor or sharecroppers on these southern plantations. So the very existence or the, the process of creating that African-American Native American coalition, even to this day, resonates with audiences. I just showed Buck and the Preacher this semester to my students in the Sydney Poitiers seminar that I'm teaching. And one of the things that uh all the students in the class said is they were struck by that coalition, by that Native American, African American coalition, because even today you don't see that kind of political relationship shown in popular culture. So that just gives you a sense, um, sorry to be kind of long-winded, but that gives you a sense of um, the emergence of this genre through say the films of Sidney Poitier uh, and others.
0: Yeah, this seems like a real milestone in the genre, and um, you know, I I am not a film scholar, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that might be totally ignorant of the actual like arc of film history. But the the film that you're describing, it seems sort of like a gateway for the black western into the sort of new Hollywood of the 1960s and 1970s. Is that a, is that a fair thing to say?
1: Absolutely, because. Buck in the Preacher was also informed by new Hollywood filmmaking insofar as when you look at it, the aesthetic, the soundtrack, the visuals uh, pay homage to films like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is that George Roy Hill-directed film starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And as you know, it starts out with the beautiful sepia images that ultimately will, will slow fade to color it it uh, centers on butch cassidy and sundance's sort of of bank robberies and there are several homages within buck and the preacher to uh that film so for example the use of the sepia uh, and grainy style credits that evoke the sort of uh, photography at the beginning of sundance um that um There is a bank robbery that is at the center of the film that uh, also is in some ways an homage to the bank robberies in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So there are several little tidbits and, and the soundtrack not, you know, not, uh, uh, at, at all uh, unimportant the way the uh, use of the harmonica and the harp on the soundtrack and the RB rhythms, uh, as we saw with many new Hollywood films, whether it was The Graduate, right, and their use of, of Simon and Garfunkel um, or uh, Badlands or other films, the, the way they utilized uh, rock, rock and roll. And R&B was all new and new to uh, within the logics and aesthetics of new Hollywood cinema. So I definitely appreciate that question. It's a great, uh, great uh, point.
0: The 1970s also, uh, you know, again, we're at this kind of turning point in in film uh, in, in the United States. The 1970s saw the rise in the popularity of a genre known as black exploitation. What was black exploitation, and how does this genre engage in Western storytelling on film in often kind of new ways?
1: Yes, thank you. So... I love this question about what is black exploitation because it's a it's a fraught question in some ways or not so much the question's fraught but the answer is a bit complicated because in some ways the very films that we identify as black exploitation weren't quite that yet. So when I say that the, some of the first films to demonstrate the existence of a, of a large African American market for films were Sweet Sweetback Badass song directed by Melvin Van Peebles and Gordon Parks's Shaft. So Sweet Sweetback was really the first um, film is that uh, demonstrated the existence of that audience. So Melvin Van Peebles, who had made films before Sweetback, he had made sort of f- uh, films that were kind of inspired by French New Wave, story of Three Day Pass, for example, and um, Watermelon Man. But he will he will make Sweet Sweetback as a film that's about. Um, a resistor. He, he He's a very independent, the the character Sweetback is an independent, self-absorbed gigolo, if you will, who doesn't really care about anybody. But he witnesses a young boy being uh, treated, as sort of teenager, being abused by the police. He witnesses police brutality on one of his own, if you will, a member of the African-American community. And it's the witnessing of this police brutality that politicizes Sweetback to stop playing along with the police to um f- to fight back to li- to help this kid liberate him from police custody and then he becomes a fugitive from injustice if you will and the rest of the film is about you know uh uh about sweetback being a fugitive from injustice and so that film emerges and becomes a cult classic, and on a budget of like five hundred thousand dollars, goes on to make millions of dollars. Same year, nineteen seventy-one, Gordon Parks releases Shaft, starring Richard Roundtree, another football hero turned Hollywood. And um, that film also goes on to make uh, you know a lot of money, uh, on, on, although it had been produced on a on a higher budget than Sweetback, but it goes on to be. Uh, record breaker. And a record breaker insofar as the studios didn't really know, didn't really believe actually that a film held by an African American could make this kind of money. But when they see these two films, it's an aha moment. The the light bulb goes off and then several studios go about, begin the process of making cheaply uh, produced, quickly made, uh, black action films, and that whole spate of black action films that emerge after Sweet Sweetback and Buckin, excuse me, and Shaft are the films that we refer to as black exploitation. And we, and that term really was a, a term coined by a journalist who was, who was describing the films and they were, they were t- termed black exploitation because the idea is that they were films that were kind of exploiting the black o- the existence uh, of a black audience hungry for images of themselves that were not the super Sydney images that were not the buttoned up, urbane, you know, sexless, overly, uh, you know, overly. Um, moderate, super Sydney Poitier type of roles like America has seen in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And they instead offered a black masculinity that was authoritative and was not taking any SHIT from the man uh, from, or from the system. And, and so it's that whole spate of films that emerges after. Uh, that really qualifies as black exploitation. So, because those films were so popular, and not only were they popular with white audiences—excuse me, with black audiences—they were also popular with white audiences. They were making millions, and and black exploitation aesthetics began to inform other genres. So, we then see the influence of black exploitation on westerns, and you begin to get black exploitation westerns, and not, and those would be some of the films in which. Fred Williamson would star. So, you know, forgive my use of the N-word, but there was a whole trilogy, this sort of Nigger Charlie trilogy in which Fred Williamson starred. So um, The Legend of Nigger Charlie, um, uh, Soul of Nigger Charlie, and Boss Nigger were three films that starred Fred Williamson. But these were films in which um, the N-word was kind of used, not as in a pejorative way, but uh, in this sort of uh, way in which he, the, the main character, Charlie, turns the epithet on its head. And I'm not at all endorsing the use of the N-word, I'm just sort of framing the context. So you have the emergence of that, and now, as I mentioned, this is a time when exploitation uh, films are uh, in, not only enormously popular, but uh, they are uh, being seen by White audiences as well, and we know that because well, we have the legacy of uh, we have you know the homages to um, to black quotation films and say the work of Tarantino, right? And Tarantino is just one of many, you know, uh, sort of a, a canary in the coal mine who who demonstrates. How influential these films were on white spectators, and some of whom would become, you know, uh, uh, filmmakers. So we have today films like Django Unchained, which is partially black exploitation, or at least informed by black exploitation aesthetics and west exploitation aesthetics, uh, as an homage in some ways to both Django, the spaghetti western uh, uh, that uh, it borrows its title from. And the black exploitation films that uh, that preceded it.
0: Your book's title also uh, shouts out uh, a kind of a famous black western as well, Black Black Rodeo, which was released in 1972. Can you tell us a little bit about 1972 being kind of the the, the at the, the the dawn of this era that we're talking about with black exploitation? Can you talk a little bit about this film, Black Rodeo, and its significance both for the era that it's coming out in, in the kind of early to mid 1970s, and for what it says generally about African Americans and westerns in the decades that would follow in film? History.
1: Yes, thank you for that. So I was at the Library of Congress researching, I think, maybe my first uh, book at, when I discovered Black Rodeo. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what, what, what could this be? And I got to see it on film at the Library of Congress. So it was years later when I was working on this book that I said, you know, I really want to go back to Black Rodeo and somehow link it to my project on the Black Western. Because there is this way in which black Western idioms uh, are, are not well understood, not well researched and, and not and black Western popular culture is not really contextualized, so I was very interested in learning more about this film as I went back, I was able to find it uh, on. DVD, but it's it's since been kind of difficult to find. But this is a documentary made by a young documentary filmmaker, Je- uh, uh, Jeff Canoe, who uh, was really in in. A genius in in coming up with the uh, the idea to film this rodeo. He learned that a an all black traveling rodeo would be performing on Randall's Island in Manhattan, and he got the brilliant idea to get a crew together and to film it. Now he didn't have much experience in film. He had been like editing trailers, <laughs> and then but he gets the idea to go to this rodeo and to film it. And so what he produced is a uh, a cinema verite style doc. Doctor- and by cinema verite, we kind of mean direct cinema, more observational, um, where the filmmaker isn't using talking heads per se, but it's a little bit more like fly on the wall, filmmaking, just observing what's happening. Uh, Think, you know, reality show. And uh, he captures not only the rodeo, but also the response of the African-American community to the rodeo and uh, how much pride the members of, uh, the Harlem community and the members of Manhattan, uh, sort of residents of Manhattan feel uh, the pride that they feel in witnessing an African-American rodeo and the opportunity, you know, the kids having the opportunity to speak to these rodeo performers. And so it's a wonderful document, a wonderful moment that uh, calls our attention to, as you say, the presence of, um, of African-American rodeo culture and rodeo idioms and um, the existence of them. Now, luckily we see that today with things like the Compton Cowboys and the um, Delta Hill Riders and various other equestrian clubs, the Compton Junior Posse, and uh, as another example, as these, these equestrian clubs and equestrian communities, that there is a vibrant uh, black rodeo, multicultural rodeos that travel, that exist uh, today, but that live, that's uh, really made a, a comeback as of late. So I wanted to incorporate these this rodeo into the book as an example of both rodeo culture and as an example of black uh, uh, film culture as well. So it works for me and for the book in both ways.
0: Well, let's bring this story up to the present day. And I'm curious how the African-American Western has changed uh, in the late 20th century and up through today in the early 21st century. What are some uh, recent examples and what sort of debts or homages do do they owe or do they pay to their forebears? Or I guess on the flip side of that, how do they diverge from the kinds of stories that have come before in film?
1: Right, wonderful. Well, as you know, there are some Westerns that I don't talk about in the book. So, for example, if we're bringing this sort of trajectory up to the present, there are wonderful Westerns, comedies like Blazing Saddles. Now, I don't write about Blazing Saddles at length in the book simply because I feel like people know Blazing Saddles. And also because I feel like as much as it's a Western, it's more of a send-up of, uh, of, movie making i would say and and of various genres of which the western is one Uh, and then there were also a a range of films that were sort of coming of age stories a man and boy and so forth uh, and uh, thomasine and bushrod but when we look at today's westerns i think i see um examples like posse and Rosewood uh, as sort of helping us make the transition to a late 20th century, early 21st century aesthetic in the Western genre. And Posse is a very interesting film. This is Mario Van Peebles' Western and his, I believe his second feature film after he had made New Jack City. It Posse is an interesting uh, iteration or sort of take on the Western, the Black Western, because as much as it's a western and and a film that's made an, an homage to earlier westerns, it's also a film that's embracing contemporary politics and looking at contemporary political issues. So around the time that Posse emerged in the '90s, people were very uh, concerned about, rightly so, you know, the the Rodney King beating and then the the two um, trials, right the the uh, the main trial and then the, the civil trial, and what was interesting is is the fact that uh, Posse takes up the Rodney King beating uh, metaphorically within the text. So there's a scene that recall, that is sort of blocked and recalls the Rodney King affair, and so it's it's uh, and the Rodney King beating by the L.A. police officers. So it was directly referencing the, um, you know, contemporary political issues. Similarly, Rosewood, uh, which emerges just a few years after Posse in the late 90s. Um, Rosewood, directed by John Singleton, was a memorial to Black towns and to thriving Black communities. Rosewood tells the story of the Rosewood Massacre in Florida in the 20s. And uh, this was a, a an actual event that happened in the town of Rosewood, Florida, that was burned down because of tensions between the town and the white community n- nearby. The there was a um, a way in which the thriving black township was deeply res- was deeply resented by whites. Uh, in neighboring towns that were not thriving, that were not doing as well. And out of white supremacy and out of racial tensions at the time, uh, the Klan the, uh, and the members of the local town, Sumner, uh, brought about a kind of um, Uh, uh, tragic almost uh, uh, genocide of the the residents of rosewood and the town was attacked and burned down to the ground so this is a true story that people can look up and research so what we see in contemporary westerns of the late 1990s and early 2000s is the way they are once westerns but also addressing political issues of their day or of the moment in which they're situated. And it kind of proves the, the, the axiom that uh, people in, in academia often or at least in film studies, often cite, which is that films are as much about the moment in which they're made uh, and as they are about the time in which they're set, right? So they reflect both the politics and the culture of the historical era and the contemporary era out of which they emerge. But I, I love the question. Thank you.
0: And as we begin to wrap up here, um, I always like to uh, ask my guests a question, kind of uh, flipping the book around a little bit. So imagine that you're someone that has read this book rather than the author of the book, and you're thinking back on this book that you have read in, say, a year or five years or 10 years. What do you hope that that you might take away from this book? Someone that has read it, thinking back on it further on, sort of down, down the road. What's maybe one takeaway that you hope readers come away from this book understanding or thinking about later on? What might that be?
1: I would love them to come away with the realization that there are many more African American westerns than they were aware of and I hope that they go back and watch these westerns with their friends maybe create a little cinema club or book and film club where they watch a few films and read a chapter and watch, you know, another few films and read a chapter together and discuss it and definitely watch the films first then read the chapter so that you can um, discuss them and um, share your thoughts and so that the chapters don't give away or, or create any spoilers for you, but then you read about them and, and discuss them and, and I hope that folks come away with a, a recognition of um, the the numbers of African American Westerners, but then I also hope that that whets their appetite to go and look at um, the actual historical accounts of men and women who lived on the frontier, you know, in this era, to learn about Stagecoach Mary, to learn about uh, um, about uh, Bill Pickett, to to learn about Nat Love, to learn about these historical figures who were uh, mavericks and pioneers on the frontier, the African-American men and women who helped to settle the frontier South. And it's not a a history that's without its contradictions and its tensions, but it's definitely a history that's uh, integral and it's our history. So I hope people take that away from the book.
0: And then, Mia, for my last question, uh, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they've been working on uh, since the book has come out. And I know this book has not been out for very long, just a, just a handful of months. But do you have any projects that you would like to uh, uh, kind of give us a bit of a preview of?
1: Absolutely. So I'm currently working on a book titled The Harder – that's going to be about The Harder They Come. Now, that's not to be confused with The Harder They Fall. So The Harder They Fall is a, is a new – uh, Western that stars Idris Elba and is directed by James Samuel and has a, a, an all star cast a number, of Lakeith Stanfield and others are in it. And uh, it's a newer Western, also reflecting our contemporary political moment. But uh, so that's the, the new film. But the, the film that I'm working on is The Harder They Come, and that's a Jamaican crime story slash Western uh, that stars Jimmy Cliff and uh, was released in 1972, and it's uh, about Ivan Martin, a young man from this sort of country who comes to Kingston, Jamaica to, to try and uh, make a life for himself, and the film's an interesting film because it uh, is in some ways a Western as well, so I'm working on a book for um, University of New Mexico Press on The Harder They Come, and uh, really excited about it.
0: That sounds fantastic. Um, <laughs> the Of They Come is one of my dad's favorite movies, actually. So oh, he listens to this show sometimes. So uh, if you're listening, dad, uh, I'll have to buy you that book for you to read at some point. Oh, that'd be um, great. And, you know, I actually, so I said that was my last question, but I lied. I'm going to ask you one other question. Since we've been talking about films and, and you know, films of the past and films of the present so much, are there any films either in the Black Western genre or uh, contemporary films, but any that you have seen recently or been thinking a lot about recently that you'd really want to suggest that our listeners might want to check out?
1: Uh, any westerns that they, that I want them to check out, or just films yeah, in general,
0: or just or just anything at all. What have you been watching lately?
1: Oh, sure. Um, well, there are so many wonderful television shows, but yes, I would. I want to <laughs> make sure that your audiences that your audience has seen um, Django Unchained. That's a really important film to see. For the way in which it's an homage to uh, uh, black exploitation, west exploitation, African American uh, westerns. For the way it's an homage to uh, to uh, uh, Django and the Django series of spaghetti westerns. So that's a really important film, and for the wonderful performances by Jamie Foxx and. Uh, 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 Kerry Washington and just the fabulous cast—Samuel Jackson, um, Leonardo DiCaprio—I mean, Christopher Walken. That cast is just phenomenal. So I love that film, and I hope that people see that. Um, and then I've been watching a lot of films, but also television shows. One of the other reasons that I wrote this book is because I was seeing westerns everywhere, Stephen. I mean, I was seeing them sort of like you know, it's it's almost like a a, a scene out of a of a a movie where you're where you're seeing Westerns everywhere. So I was watching Breaking Bad and, and recognizing the way in which the Western, the logic of the Western, undergirded that show. Or Michelle Thackeray and Godless, or some episodes of Westworld, right? Obviously, Westworld, you know, it evokes the Western, but, or a television show like Justified or the sort of apocalyptic um, series of Fortitude, which is set up you know, in the Arctic, but is oddly enough also kind of a Western, or um, I don't know, The Good Lord Bird with Ethan Hawke. I mean, I was seeing the presence of the Western in all of these television shows, including, uh, um, oh gosh, something, like uh oh gosh just lost my train of thought but another tv show but at at any rate in so many different tv shows and movies that i thought you know it's not as though the western is um is is sort of is older is is a kind of uh a, a an outdated outmoded genre because many of my students are like well i haven't really seen that way, that many westerns are westerns really still popular and i and then when i point out to them the numbers of tv shows And movies that are still informed by the logics, the syntax, the ideas, the structure of the Western, then they say, wow, you're right. You know, there are all of these these TV shows, um, all of these films uh, and even uh, music videos that are informed by Westerns. They recognize how useful it is to be literate in the in the logics of the genre. And so. I'm just excited sort of by that and um, hope that people sort of take that away and will watch uh, television shows. Oh, I, get, I remember the other one I was thinking of, The Walking Dead <laughs> and The Walking Dead, right, uh, that um, in, in watching and being a, a media consumer, that people are aware of the way the Western undergirds so much of our popular culture, even though some of these police procedurals and some of these dramas don't present as immediately initially as westerns or they wrap their story in a different location like you know uh the, the the northernmost town that is the centerpiece of fortitude but then when you think about the landscape as prohibitive and difficult and and requiring that one carry a gun you know to arm oneself against uh you know uh, 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 uh intruders or or hostile uh diff, you know uh, elements then you begin to see how the logics of the Western are not only
0: with us, but really undergirding so much of popular culture. Dr. Mia Mask is a professor of film at Vassar College, and her new book is Black Rodeo, a history of the African-American Western, which came out with the University of Illinois Press earlier this year in 2023. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mia.
1: Thank you for having me, Stephen. I had a great time.